Actress Lori Laughlin, you've heard, was sentenced to two months in federal prison for her role in the college admissions scandal. She's going to serve two years of supervised release during which she must perform 100 hours of community service, pay a fine of $150,000. I think they can pay that. Her husband and co-defendant received five months of prison, a $250,000 fine and 250 hours of community service. Now, during the hearings, U.S. District Judge Nathaniel Gorton addressed both defendants, and I quote, Here you are, an admired, successful, professional actor with a long-standing marriage. Two apparently healthy, resilient children. More money than you could possibly need. A beautiful home in sunny Southern California. A fairytale life. Yet you stand before me a convicted felon. And for what? For the inexplicable desire to grasp even more. End quote. Ouch. One lesson we learn to consider is the choice that each of us have as moral creatures who can obey our desire or say no to a certain desire. There are some desires that are fitting for the spirit, some that fit more our flesh. Now, if we were dogs, we would obey every desire we have, every passion. We equate our identity with our desire as an animal, obeying whatever desire our flesh feels. That's what animals do. But as human beings made in the image of God, we are given moral responsibility to make a choice even different than our desires. That makes us something unique in terms of all the other species on the earth. You know, we can walk into a bank and you look at the vault. You might have a fleeting thought, man, I wonder what it would be like to have all that money in that vault. Now, I don't imagine that we take it much further than that. 99.9% of the human beings that think that thought let it go away. But there are some who think, wow, I think I'm going to rob this bank, all right? But most of us say no to that because we embrace the creator's uh, creator's design when we acknowledge moral volition in the face of desire. We can choose to sin in other ways besides robbing a bank. We can choose sexual gratification, materialism, uh, relational manipulation, because those sins present themselves as attractive and usually minus the consequences. That's how temptation presents itself to us. James says, each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Now, Paul, thankfully, gives us some descriptors to recognize flesh versus the spirit. He does this in Galatians. He says this. But I say walk by the Spirit, and you'll not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other in order to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. 
Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Can't possibly mention every sin, but it's in all of those families, right? I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, I've made a point before. I think there's a difference between inheriting and entering the kingdom of God, but that's for another sermon. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desire. So clearly, we are given a choice to do something of the flesh, where the desires come from, or a desire that comes from the Spirit. Now, some will claim, you know what? The fleshly desires are just too powerful. I can't say no to it. Now, that's a lie, but that's common even with Christians to say that. I like what C.S. Lewis said in this regard. Our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. So maybe our challenge as a community of faith is not to be far too easily pleased, right? Uh, to boldly, courageously learn of the word of God, to raise up a body of saints that are distinct from the materialistic, uh, sex-oriented, sex-centric society that is drifting further and further from God. I say that not so we can hate the culture or hate the people in the culture, quite the opposite. We love the people in our culture, right? And I don't want to sit there and just demean the culture. But in this light, the story, I think, of Hosea stands as a mirror to the U.S. culture, not in the sense of being some, you know, uh, theocracy, because we're not, but a reminder of what happens when people forget God. You can sit here and decry about the downfall of the culture, but in my opinion, what we should rather do is see these op as opportunities for the gospel. Because I see people all the time so tired of the political stream, tired of a pandemic, tired of a lot of things. These are opportunities to see the satisfaction that we get in Jesus Christ. It's not for me to sit there and decry about the culture. The fact is, the Bible says we are aliens here. We're not setting up a little heaven here on earth, all right? We are aliens. The culture is against the stream of the Spirit. We have to realize that. And so we learn to appreciate the uh, impact of the gospel in our lives and in the lives of others. Remember, Israel was the northern kingdom and Judah the southern part of the divided nation of God. And so we pick up our text in Hosea 4.10. This is what it says. They shall eat, but not be satisfied. They shall play the whore, but not multiply. 
because they have forsaken the Lord to cherish whoredom, wine, and new wine, which take away the understanding. One thing that fleshly pursuits teach us is that sex, money, or achievement um, cannot stop the flesh from desiring more, no matter how much you get of those. The flesh, the world, and the devil know nothing of contentment, right? I remember sitting in a business meeting when I was a manager years ago, and the national sales manager had a um, meeting giving, you know, Maslow's hierarchy, which you've probably seen before, and he was saying what the ultimate needs were and blah, blah, blah. And he was pointing to different people in the room, and he goes, hey, Short, what's the thing you want in... Now, these are all sales managers around the country he's pointing to, all right? And he says, what is it you want out of life? And I said, well, I'd like contentment. He ran down my throat like I said, your mother is ugly. I mean... <laughs> He said, contentment? You don't want contentment. You don't, you know, they don't want a sales manager with contentment. You know, they want you to keep driving. They don't want you satisfied. And so I'm like, whoa, sorry I even talked. You asked me, I told you, right? Um, but the fact is, that's the way of the world. You can't, can't have contentment. Now, that doesn't mean you don't have drive to succeed. That doesn't mean you don't want to excel, but it means my heart is satisfied. And dare I say for the Christian, even in the simple things, my heart is satisfied. Sex within marriage, by the way, that's good, right? Money as a means of stewardship, that's a wonderful tool. Achievement to leverage your influence for the kingdom of God, this is a noble thing. But when made an idol or as part of idol worship as in Hosea's day, these things are twisted from their godly purpose. Practicing the idol worship for these people, for the Israelites and the surrounding culture, held out false hope that they would become more prosperous, that their wives would bear more children, that they would have more livestock. But it was Yahweh, God of the Israelites, and not Baal, who could give fertility and prosperity. The Israelites forgot that. I have yet to meet anybody in my life who says, you know, my headlong pursuit of drink and sex have made me much smarter and happier. Again, it's not that having sex or having a drink that is decried here. It's the category of wanton pleasure and within an idle context that makes you less sensitive to the things of God, less aware of your sin. And in the wanton stage, we owe a stupid tax that our bank account cannot pay. My people inquire of a piece of wood, and their walking staff gives them oracles. For a spirit of whoredom has led them astray, and they have left their God to see, to play the whore. There was a practice in those days 
that was meant to practice divination with at least two rods. Two rods were, were held upright and then allowed to drop while incantations were being uttered. And the oracle was inferred to read the message of the rods as they fell to the ground. If they fell backward, forward, left or to the right. There's supposed to be a certain message from that. But it's the people of God that are called to heed God's words. But they were praying to wooden idols, looking for meaning in thrown sticks. You say, how stupid. Huh. Well, some Christians even today will go as far as to check horoscopes instead of praying for God's guidance. Be careful where you're pointing the finger. Notice it's a spirit of whoredom that led them astray. In leaving God, they were given to all kinds of sexual aberrations. Now, it seems that there's something spiritual going on here, a spirit of whoredom, even demonic when it comes to sexual sin that keeps a person in bondage and blinded to their own plight. It's so interesting when you trace this through the New Testament and you see a connection with false doctrine and sexual sin. It's the idea that you give up the, the idea of God or even the sovereignty of God and living within a moral universe or biblical responsibility, we then pave a way for our conscience to build a world even in our own head where we can do what we want without consequence. But that does not fit the world we live in. It does not fit living within a moral universe. And no matter what man does with his various philosophies, he still has to bump up against living within a moral universe with his conscience or with even nature that teaches us that there is a God. They sacrifice on the tops of the mountains and burn offerings on the hills under oak, poplar, terebinth because their shade is good. Those are three types of trees that are mentioned here. And in the mountains, the people of God were building wooden shrines, trying to gather distance between the idols and the temple sacrifices in Jerusalem. How interesting that even man in his sin has some substance of morality by not involving the temple here. We've got to separate from Jerusalem to build these idols. But Hosea mocks them in this pursuit by referring to the only true benefit of choosing these mountain sites for their abominations was good shade. That's the only good that came from it. Therefore, your daughters play the whore and your brides commit adultery. I will not punish your daughters when they play the whore, nor your brides when they commit adultery. For the men themselves go aside with prostitutes and sacrifice with cult prostitutes, and a people without understanding shall come to ruin. So women, mothers, daughters, were either doing one of two things. They were playing the temple prostitutes, or they just had a license for sexual sin of all kinds, adultery and whatever. Either way, they were indulging in sexual sin. And God brings about, I don't know, it seems a little weird, honestly, when he's saying that I'm not going to get angry with the women who were doing this. <laughs> Did I read that right? Is there something in the Hebrew here I'm not getting? No, that's what he said. Why would he say that? 
Well, I think it's because uh, he's saying, I'm not going to punish the women like they are alone in this. Because the men are in wholesale sexual sin. And I'm not going to let there be a double standard. Why should I be outraged with young women committing adultery when they learned it from their husbands? So see, the culture severely judged uh, sexual relations outside of marriage for the women, but somehow the men would get off the hook. They would justify it, excuse it. And what Hosea is saying here, I think, is that there's no such double standards that are acceptable to the Lord. So he refuses to judge women alone and not men. And the male dominated society and culture, which I think you have to draw a difference between the culture and the biblical injunctions, women were not given full rights or privileges as the man. And I hasten to add that when God brought man together originally in Genesis, it was so that they would be what? One. Right? And, and equal, even though there are different roles within uh, some social settings for men and women. But the fact is, is that the women were not greatly valued. It was not only true in the Old Testament, but let's be honest. It's also true within Christendom today. Okay? I'm not talking about the culture here. I'm talking about within Christendom. All right? I'm not speaking with some desire for a progressive mindset, which I askew and don't take a part of. I'm speaking as a Christian leader who desires to be honest about the double standards today. The stench of the Ravi Zacharias ministry, or let's say Bill Hybels, these are men who were practicing sexual sin for a long time and got a pass for years while the women suffered. And for much of church's history, it has maintained double standards for men and women. Discrimination takes place in salary scales in assuming that the hiring of a husband obligates the spouse to a joint ministry. I mean, can you imagine a wife getting hired for some job and then just assuming, oh, well, the husband needs to give us 20 hours too at the same pay. I mean, we're not going to pay him. We're just going to pay you, but we expect the husband to work just because we hired you. I mean, what is up with that, right? Um, and the fact is, is that women are restricted, even if not just with a pastoral role, but still restricted with decision-making power or, or input. So what I'm saying is that I think it's time that we as men within the church listen to our sisters of faith and first hear their pain and then make pathways to... Have, a, have them come to the table of decision-making and wisdom. We can still advocate for the biblical roles to be honored in Scripture, but for women to be treated with respect and valued at the same time. I don't claim we've arrived, but I'm thankful for women here who serve on our staff, who are on our advisory team and our ministry leaders in ways that I think are meaningful. Let's just add, when it comes to talking about Hosea here, that the refusal to punish women in Hosea was, I think, itself also an act of judgment against the nation. In other words, God is going to allow the evil to take its course. 
Maybe it'll bring the nation to their senses. Verse 15, though they play the whore, O Israel, let not Judah become guilty. Enter not into Gilgal, nor go up, go up to Beth-Avon, and swear not as the Lord lives. So by playing the whore, God is saying to Israel, they are both sexual and spiritual adulterers. Obvious sexual adulterers with the uh, temple prostitution, but spiritual adulterers in saying that they loved God, and on the other hand, practicing Baal worship. I mean, what is up with that? So God has condemned the northern kingdom Israel and is warning the southern kingdom Judah, don't be contaminated by this false worship, right? And God is calling Israel not to go into these two known holy cities, Gilgal, where uh, it was considered... a a very holy city with Israel. It was a place to prepare for Israel's first Passover within the Promised Land. It was part of Samuel's annual circuit. And much of the story of Samuel and Saul took place in Gilgal. The people of Judah welcomed David back to Gilgal after the war with Absalom. A group of Elisha's prophets resided there. It was a place of great significance in the spiritual history of Israel. And the people had every reason to consider it sacred, but even more so, Bethel. Abraham camped there, and while sleeping there, Jacob saw his vision of the stairway of heaven and gave the places its name, or, or the place its name, which was what? House of God. That's what it was meant. By the way, Beth-Avon means house of iniquity. It was a play on words that Hosea was giving. It's a sarcastic reference to the important religious center, Bethel, which means house of God. Jacob confirmed the status of the site by building a memorial pillar and an altar there. And God is saying, don't go to these holy sites and then deceive my people with your religious fraud and adultery. I mean, Israelites would enter the buildings of these idols and swear as Yahweh lives. And God is saying, what a joke. What a joke. The name of Yahweh was used with synchronistic deceit when the people knew very well that Baal was worshipped there. Verse 16, like a stubborn heifer, Israel is born. Can the Lord now feed them like a lamb in a broad pasture? Through her refusal to repent, Israel separated herself from the Lord's protective guidance. Israel is incorrigible in its evil ways. A stubborn heifer was a, was a cow that refused to go where its owner led. And the stubbornness of the people made it impossible for God to provide peace and prosperity when they're going off doing their own thing. They're like a lamb, taking a little nibble here, nibble, nibble there, moving further and further away from the shepherd until it finds itself in danger, maybe even eaten by a wolf. That's what the people of God were like, putting themselves in a dangerous position. I often think of this when I think of Christian leaders, pastors, who seemingly been bilking money or participating in sexual corruption over a long period of time. You ever think, 
How do they get away with that? Why doesn't God, you know, just rain down holy terror on their head or something in a short time and get rid of it and we can move on and not have to worry about it? Why does it seem to go on so long? Right? How can God allow it? And maybe God is allowing it because that's a part of their judgment. Their freedom leads them to ruin. We can all say with the hymn writer, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. It's easy to point the fingers and say, man, glad I don't do that. I'm glad I'm not like those pastors. (laughs) Well, our stubbornness can be expressed in a multitude of ways, in subtle ways. We can play our idols with achievement, sex, money, while at the same time expressing our commitment to God. I mean, we, you know, at the beginning of the year, set up our goals, okay? Set up the things we want to accomplish, talk about our relationships, what we want to do for the year, what we want to achieve, you know, live your best life now, and we expect God to just give a stamp of approval on it. So I do whatever I want, not really asking God his wisdom, not really looking at the scripture. I just want to do what I want, and Christianity is just a piece of that. When I can use it for my ends, that's cool. It's just one thing on the shelf. It's not like God is really ruling my life. One commentator said, we try to keep the Lord in the idol polishing and maintenance business. May we instead daily remember the sovereign rule of God in our lives and dedicate all we have and all we are to be for his kingdom. That's a good start. And may we not utilize God to accomplish our predetermined plans and purposes separate from what the Spirit of God is saying through his word. He's not gonna just take his place among our shelf of idols. Ephraim is joined to idols, leave him alone. Ephraim was traditionally one of the strongest tribes in the northern kingdom and was often used synonymously with Israel. So the covenant people had become partners with Baal and God is allowing them to absorb the full extent of their sin. When their drink is gone, they give themselves to whoring Their rulers dearly love shame. So when the liquor runs out, they engage prostitutes, meaning they drink all they can, and when that's done, they turn to sex. Pastor, author Timothy Keller used the following to demonstrate how our sexual feelings and desires can be influenced by social forces. He says, quote, Imagine an Anglo-Saxon warrior in Britain in A.D. 800. He has two very strong inner impulses and feelings. One is aggression. He loves to smash and kill people when they show him disrespect. Living in a shame and honor culture with its warrior ethic, he will identify with that feeling. He will say to himself, that's me. That's who I am. I will express that. The other feeling he senses is same-sex attraction. To that he will say, that's not me. I will control and suppress that impulse. Now imagine a young man walking around Manhattan today. He has the same two inward impulses, both equally strong, both difficult to control. What will he say? 
He will look at the aggression and think, this is not who I want to be, and will seek deliverance in therapy and anger management programs. He will look at his sexual desire, however, and conclude, this is who I am. Keller concludes, and where did our Anglo-Saxon warrior and our Manhattan man get their grids? From their cultures, their communities, their heroic stories. They are filtering their feelings, jettisoning some and embracing others. They are choosing to be the selves their cultures tell them they may be. End quote. Let me submit to you that culture is not our guide. We're not to hate culture. We're to love the people in our culture. We're to listen. We're to study the culture. We're to apply the gospel to those in the culture. But it's not our guide. We're not to take our cues from it. A wind has wrapped them in its wings, and they shall be ashamed because of their sacrifices. In other words, she soon will be swept away. Guilt and shame will replace their desire for sacrifices. And the truth of that, the truth of what they've done is going to smack them in the face at some point. Sacrifices on which they have depended on for sex, security, family, approval, is going to eventually tumble down them with shame. You know, it strikes me that we have different versions of Christianity offered to us today. You recognize that? We do. And, you know, those who think Christianity is just some monolith don't understand the culture, don't understand church history. We have different versions of Christianity. You can't just say all Christians believe X because they believe a lot of different things. But there is a Christianity in the Bible that I think we go to for truth. But there's a version of Christianity that is easily beguiled by our own idols. Much of Christianity has been fashioned for us to enjoy emotional experiences, power, pleasure in being right, security, respect, and the company of people who are attractive to me. Let's just be honest. And then there's another version that weeps with those who weep that humbles itself to serve and give. It's weary of power and can speak to inconsistencies in power. One version is just one more thing we use for self. Another version welcomes stewardship and sacrifice for the kingdom of God. It's a lot less popular. One version, Jesus lived and the New Testament modeled. Another version feeds our flesh for bigger, brighter, and fancier. We're not fooling anybody. American Christianity has its own idols. We just don't call them Baal. So here's our challenge. Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there's any grievous way in me. And lead me 
in the everlasting way. Let's pray.